The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Hope you have your Bible with you. If you don't, there should be a Bible there in front of you in the pew rack there. You can take that one and use that one. If you do not have a Bible, that one can be yours. You can just go ahead and take it home with you. We'd like you to have the Word of God with you to be able to read it. But we're going to be in Psalm 62 today, kind of ending our little series we have on Psalms here in the summer. And so Psalm 62 is where we'll be focusing. It was good to be away on vacation last week with family and and friends, some people here from the church, but it's always good to come home. It's good to be home. It's good to be with you. It's good to see your faces. I always enjoy on Sunday morning, I always like to come up here and, and sit about 10 after 10. And I like doing that because I just like listening. I'm not spying on what you're saying. I don't really care about that. Don't think that, please. Uh, but I just like hearing you guys talk together, seeing people go from over there to over here, talking to one another and so forth, fellowshipping together, enjoying each other's company. It's one of the great gifts God's given us as a church family is to be able to do that and to know, hopefully, that we actually care about each other that we actually do when we say, how are things going? We want to know how things are going. We want to be praying for each other and being there for one another. And so I'm glad that God has given us that here. I hope that you feel that and sense that and are a part of that. But it is always good to come home after vacation. Today in Psalm 62, like I said, is where we'll be. A little background, I guess, on it. It's kind of difficult, actually, with this psalm. We do not have an exact period of time when David would have wrote this psalm out. It's not... We're not too sure about that because really it fits a lot of areas of his life. Because when we look at this psalm, it seems like David is crying out during a desperate time. And uh, you know David's background, you know his story. We, we were actually in First and Second Samuel not too long ago this year. We did some of that or last fall, I think, maybe. Uh, but we went through that uh, together. When you look at David's life, his life really is compromised of a lot of desperate situations. You think about it at a young age, him standing before Goliath. I mean, imagine that, right? Being such a, a young boy standing before this, this warrior, this huge warrior, and all of Israel really on your shoulders. Because depending on what happens here, if you succeed or not, will determine if you're slaves or not. And so you had this time when David had to feel desperate standing before him, feel very alone maybe with everybody looking on or we see the story of David's life as he's so often fleeing from King Saul, right? Fleeing from this, this king of Israel uh, who David seemed to love and would do all kinds of things for, but it just wasn't reciprocated. And so he would flee from his life often from the king of Israel. Even though he would go and fight for this king and do all these things, he was constantly fleeing for his life. And so he just found himself in desperate spots. We know David to be a warrior, one who would lead men into war often, I've never done that. I've never been a part of war, but I know just thinking about it is terrifying. It really is. I, when I was in college is when uh, September 11th attack happened. In the church that I was attending in Kentucky as I was going to school down there, I remember scared me to death because we had a special service, I think, of prayer. I went to it. There was a guy there in uniform. He was young, and he stood up and said, we're all going get ready. The draft is happening. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm leaving. I'm out. That scared me to death to think about that. Well, David in his life many times would stand and fight these wars. 
David had friends in his life who would completely turn against him. He writes about this in Psalm 55. You can read that on your own. But how he would have these close friends who would turn on a dime on him. Or you could think of the time when his own son, Absalom, whom he loved, who he cared for, who he raised, would turn his back on David to try to take the throne from him and try to even kill him. David in his life had children of his own die and pass away that he had to go through, that he had to suffer through that pain and through that misery. Just a desperate situation, a a desperate feeling. David also had many of his friends die as he would go off to war. People he would come close to or one of his best friends, Jonathan, Saul's son, who would die. And so when we look at this Psalms, we're going to go through it together. It's hard to tell exactly where or when David had wrote this Psalm, but it really fits his life in a lot of different ways. And I want us to remember this, that as we read this and as we think of the great King David, that is normally how we think of David. We think of him as the great King David, God's chosen King. But even God's chosen King lived a very difficult life. It wasn't an easy life by any means. I would dare say it wouldn't be a life that you and I would want to live or choose to live. You know, if God gave you the opportunity, you can live any life. You wouldn't choose David's because it was a life of a lot of difficulty. And so when we look at that, I want us to think about that. And I also want us to understand as we go through this psalm, I think it can be said that this psalm applies to all of our lives as well as we read it. You might not have as difficult a life as David here, but many of you sitting here, I I would say all of you have found yourselves in situations or in circumstances that felt quite desperate. Now, maybe to different levels. Maybe you've had certain, certain things happen in your life at times where it was complete desperation. Like, I have no idea what to do. I don't even know how to breathe in this moment. All the way, you can go from that extreme all the way maybe to the other side to where daily you face situations that are just just difficult. Maybe daily you face situations where you kind of feel alone even when you're with a lot of people. I know I feel that way a lot. I'm more introverted. I'm not a big group person. And so for me, I like alone time. I like some quiet time for me. It helps me to Readjust, And so there's times, though, when I'm with a group that I can still feel alone and it feels a little, a little desperate. And so I think as we approach Psalm 62, I hope that we can fully grasp this psalm and understand a little bit of what David is writing here. So let's look at Psalm 62 together, and we're going to plot our way through it uh, this morning. Verse 1, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. 
Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his works. Well, the first section we need to look at this morning is verses one and two. In verse one and two, as we read, David says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence and from him comes my salvation. Now, I don't know what you feel about the word waiting, but I don't think it's a positive word in today's culture. Waiting. I despise waiting. I'll tell you one of the places I hate waiting the most is the doctor's office. They're supposed to be the smartest people in the world and they can't seem to figure out a schedule. They, they can't seem to figure out how uh, I'm, my appointment's at nine. My appointment's at nine. I should see, see you at nine, maybe, 9.15, maybe 9.30 if something drastic's happening. But 10.30, 10, it really is frustrating to me to sit in those rooms and just wait and wait and wait. I'm just, I'm just not very good at it. Uh, personally. And maybe you can think of some other times when you're not very good at waiting. But here, David says, for God alone, my soul waits. And it seems as if waiting is an important thing that we are supposed to be doing when focusing on the Lord. David, during his troubled time, whatever it may have been, whatever situation, he says that he would wait on the Lord and he would wait on the Lord in silence. (laughs) How much easier would your life be if sometimes you would have just simply waited in silence. I mean, think of the errors and the mistakes that you've made, the things that you've just said and blurted out or whatever it might be. And when looking back, you thought, would you just keep your mouth shut? Just keep your mouth shut for a second and you would have been so much better off. We do that to the Lord as well. We like to approach God in troubled situations and we like to question him and we like to say things like, why am I going through this or why am I facing this or why do I feel so alone or we want to throw these different things out at him when probably the better response would be to sit and to wait in silence on the Lord to see and understand maybe why this situation is happening in the first place or why am I going through this? And when we see that this is what David would encourage, even of himself, to say, sit and wait in silence. And really what this shows, what this shows of King David is, is it shows a complete trust and reliance on God and his faithfulness. Of understanding, David understanding, there's nothing that I can do in this situation. The best place for me to be is to sit here and to be quiet and to wait upon the goodness of our Lord to wait on his everlasting faithfulness, to trust in him. Now, that's not how I've been taught. That's not how I've been taught in life. As I go to school, as you go to these different things, maybe of how to be a leader, very rarely, if ever, have I heard, just just chill out. Just sit back and wait. No, it's always go, go, go. Early bird gets the worm. Get out there. You've got to make contacts. You've got to be in people's faces. You've got to do these things. But yet what David understood is my complete trust is in God. And I'm in a situation now where I've realized none of that stuff matters. What I need is I need to hear from the Lord. I need to be with the Lord. I need to trust in God in every single moment. And the same falls for us. 
Oftentimes, the reason we don't want to wait in silence really is a reflection of our trust in God and who he is. We're not too confident of who he is. And so we have things to say or we have things that just need to get done. And so it makes us uncomfortable to sit and to wait on the Lord. But we need to be faithful in that. David understood that his salvation was from the Lord and only from the Lord. And in him only could he find this salvation. And so then the natural response to that is, then why would I worry? If my hope and my salvation is in him and God has promised that to me, then I have nothing to worry about. I have no fear. I think a bad analogy of this would be backseat drivers in cars. Women, that's you, okay? I'm just gonna be honest, that's you. You guys do this, at least in my car. That's how it functions. There's like a brake on that side, apparently. I gotta replace the door handle because it's been squeezed uh, to death. There's always something. There's always something going on. But there's a worry there, and it's real, and that's okay, but there's a worry of what? This person driving this car might not be the safest person to be with, right? There's, there's an uncomfortableness there. And a lot of times, I think that's how we then approach our relationship with God. We have this uncomfortableness that we're not really sure he has the whole world in his hands. We're not really sure he even holds me in his hands. Can I really trust you with my life? Not, not my salvation, not me going to heaven. I trust that that's secure, but what about everything else? What about here? And so we get worried about that. And so we struggle with that. But David here is proclaiming in verses one and two, he is proclaiming to the Lord and saying it out loud. He's saying the safest place for me to be is in your arms and nowhere else. The safest place is in the arms of God. And look how he talks about it. He says, you are what? My fortress. It is a fortress. It is the safest place for me to be, David would say, is in your arms. When we think about that word fortress, it's very interesting as we look at the next few verses here. And David actually will repeat, will repeat this in a moment about being in a fortress. And look, why do, why do we need a fortress? Well, look at verses three and four. Right, verses one and two is talking to God. I will wait on you. You are my rock. You are my fortress. Verse three and four then is directed at man. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So again, at this point, David has got to be feeling betrayed. He's got to be feeling, again, desperate. They're, they're trying to thrust me down from my position. They're trying to, to take me away. That's all anybody wants to do. Oh, they come up to my face and they say, oh, King David, we love you, but I know in the back room... That's not what they're saying. That's not what's being talked about. And so David feels that hurt. And so he, he talks about trusting in God, but then David shares his struggles in life. So I think I'll say this again later, but I, I want it to make sure it's said. Just because we go through struggles in life does not mean that God is not our fortress. God does not have us in his arms. It's a normal thing to face these struggles, to face these difficulties. As I said here, David feels attacked. He feels battered by his enemies. They want to throw him down. They, they lie about him. They are completely fake to his face, it seems, in all situations. Again, I think that this would be something all of us would probably understand to some extent. It's something that we can grasp where maybe we find ourselves in a similar position as David, where it feels like the people around us just want to hurt us. Everybody at work seems to be 
against me. You know, or maybe it was even a good thing in your life. You got the job promotion, but now all of your friends don't like you because you got the job promotion. And so you know by the water cooler, they're talking about you and how you didn't deserve it because you didn't do whatever that they had done. And so you just feel this awkwardness when you walk in the room and it's so uncomfortable. And right, we, we understand these feelings and we want to focus on this. Now, I think something needs to be said too, though, is sometimes that's us as the attackers. Again, when we look at a psalm, we want to think of us as David or Solomon or whoever wrote the psalm as the, the righteous one and all these things. But often, where we're reflected is we're the people of verse three and four, throwing the stones, casting the things, casting the names. You know, think, think about it in your life. I'll give, you, I'll give you a few seconds here to think about it. Think about the people in your life where this, this describes them. They're fake to your face. They talk bad. You think they set people up for failure. Go ahead and think about them. Now, as you think of those names, know this. The people you're sitting by are probably thinking about you. They probably are. Your name crossed their mind. It's because we're all guilty of this. We all, we all struggle with these, with these tendencies. And so it's not far-fetched to be able to apply this psalm to our life and to, to understand what David is going through. It's difficult. Yet David says in verse three, and this is, this is an important verse, he says, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? Here he talks about his enemies, and I, I'd spent a lot of time actually in studying this section because I, I felt like it was a hard one to grasp. But in the King James Version, I think the King James Version is a better uh, rendering of this, of this passage here. And so I want to read it. Uh, verse 3 says this in the King James Version. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall, shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. What David is talking about in verse 3 actually is about his enemies being a tottering wall, a bowing fence. Not, not him. He just talked about... God is my fortress. I shall never be moved. I shall never be shaken. That was one of my problems in reading it in the ESV. I thought, this doesn't make sense. What David is talking about here, he just talked about his security, but now he's talking about a big lack of security that's actually going to lead to failure. And what he's talking about there is he's talking about those who attack. They are a bowing wall. They are a tottering fence. And this truth helps David. It helps him because he understands that his trust and his continued trust in the Lord is his strength. And those who do not trust in the Lord but attack and care about the things of this world, they are a tottering fence that will fall down. There is no doubt. It is not going to stand. Oh, it hurts while they're doing those attacks, but those attacks can only last so long. Your lifetime. They might do it your whole lifetime, but when you're dead and gone, it doesn't matter anymore. And at some point, they will be dead and gone too. And so do they stand? And what David is saying here is, I am in the fortress of God. I will stand, no doubt. But those who attack will not stand. It will not happen. It will not take place. And so David is trying to uh, show again his faithfulness to the Lord in this. He knows his enemies are going to tumble. He knows that they are going to fall. Yet, notice this, knowing this does not alleviate all the trouble. The words still hurt. The attacks are still extremely discouraging. I can't imagine what it would be like for your own son to want you dead, to want you out of the picture. Yet that's what David would go through. No doubt that hurt. 
Yes, he trusts in the Lord. Yes, his faith is in the Lord. But that stuff is still so difficult. Even knowing that it might not last forever. It's still hard. But again, look at, look at the next verses. In verse 5 and 6 and 7, what does David say? He repeats what he said in verses 1 and 2. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. It's almost as if in verse 5, David is preaching to himself here. David is, David is preaching to himself like, come on. Come on, David, wait. Wait in silence. Trust in the Lord. You can do this. We can do this, right? Stay strong. Keep, keep fighting. Keep trusting. I'm guessing that you do this to yourself all the time. I, I know I do. I, I talk to myself all the time, especially like in, in competitions and stuff. Like, come on, Tim, that was bonehead mistake there. You know better than that, right? Or come on, let's get our act together. This time, this is what, this is what you're going to do. I actually got called out for it here during the cornhole tournament. I think it was one of the bonk boys. Apparently, I wasn't talking to myself in my head. I was talking out loud, and they were like, hey, this is a Christian event here. You need to calm down, sir. It's like, you shut up, little kid. But we do that, right? I don't think I'm alone in that. We see David doing that here. We see it in his life. He's saying, come on, wait in silence. This hurts. This is difficult. This is so tough. But remember, for God alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. Why? Because my hope is from him. It's not in my son. It's not in my kingdom. It's not in my friends. It's not in my own strength. My hope is only in him. He alone is my rock. He alone is my salvation. He would say, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Although David is hurting, David is struggling. What does he do? He continues to put his trust in God and in God alone. Because why? He knows there is nowhere else to turn. There is absolutely no better place for him to be than in the arms of God and trusting in his sovereign God. So often in our life, what we come, have to come to understand as Christians is that God uses suffering and he uses hardship in our life to draw us closer to him. That's the purpose of it. That is why it is there. In the Old Testament, you will see references being made to gold being burnt in a fire. Why? So that the gold can be purified, so that the gold can be better. We see this often in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see that we will face discipline. Why? Because God loves us and because he cares for us as a father cares for a child. We see that in Hebrews chapter 12. We read verses like Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and these verses are read during difficult times where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We, we hear those verses and we, we see those verses, and oftentimes they're, they're misapplied to say, you're not going to feel pain much longer. God wants good things for you, and so you're going to feel good very soon. Don't worry. Your kids will come back home and love you. Your kids will make good. Why? Because God loves you. All things work together for good. You couldn't do those types of hermeneutics to David. <laughs> if you were trying to talk to King David and you tried to use Romans 8.28 to say that, he's going to look at you and say, uh, you're a false prophet who needs to get out of my face. Because that wasn't true of my life, and I'm God's chosen king. I'm the one who he chose, and my life was very difficult. But David still would say, but this verse rings true. Because I know he has good things planned for me. My salvation, my salvation. 
He is my fortress. He is my hope. He is the only one who can give me hope. Oh, all these things in life, yes, are very difficult and they hurt badly. But one day, I'll have no more pain. One day, there'll be no more suffering. One day, there'll be nobody hurling attacks at me or trying to take me down from my throne. Why? Because it'll be Jesus on the throne who we're staring at, who we're worshiping forever and ever and ever. That is what my hope lies in. This is what David is getting at here. One of the Puritans back in the day, his name's Thomas Watson. He wrote a book called The Divine Cordial. And in it, he put there are 10 ways God uses suffering in our lives according to scripture. I'm gonna share them with you just real briefly. I'm not gonna take a lot of time on them. The first one that he says, he says, God uses suffering as our preacher and as our tutor. Uh, we, we see this, right? Uh, when we suffer, a lot of times what God does in our suffering is it shows the ingratitude that we have in our life. It comes to the surface. The ingratitude that we have in our heart or the rebellion in our heart becomes very clear when you suffer. If you ever counseled anybody or dealt with somebody who was in the midst of suffering, normally one of the first things they do is lash out. They're angry at God and they're, they're desperate. And so they're just fighting. But what that shows, again, is the sin in our hearts and in our lives. The second thing he would say is God uses suffering to make the heart more upright. The way he described it is really good is how, how sin bends our heart. It bends our heart like a rod of iron. It bends it there. But what God does in suffering, this fire that comes in, and it, it allows us to be straightened back up, to straighten our heart back up so that we can see more clearly. He says God uses suffering to conform us to Christ. And this has been said many times. I don't think we take it to heart. But how would we as Christians, Christ followers, think that our life would be any different than the one we follow? I think the way, I can't remember who I was reading, but they were, they were talking about this. Why would we think that our crown would have roses on it when his had thorns on it? Well, why do you think you deserve roses when our Savior wore thorns? See, we, we will suffer. We've been told that we will suffer. God uses suffering in our lives to destroy sin, he would say. It shows sin in even the most upright heart. All of us, no matter how righteous you are, no matter how good you are, if we were to, if we were to rank you as church members from one down to the bottom, it don't matter. All of you have sin in your heart that needs to be dealt with, and suffering usually is what brings that out. It shows us it. Not when we're happy, not, when, not during pros, prosperity, not during these things. No, when we're, when we're hurting, all of a sudden the sin comes up, and that's what he would say next. He says, God uses suffering to loosen our hearts from the world. If you've ever suffered before, you understand what this means. The world doesn't seem to matter as much anymore because it's not going to help you when you're in bed suffering and you might die from whatever it is. You don't care who won the football game. You don't even really care what's happening at work. You're not really focused on that stuff anymore. You get so centralized onto the real issue. And God so often uses that to loosen our hearts from these things of the world that we grasp to so that we will just let them go to see that that's not as important as we think it is. He'd go on and say, God uses suffering for us to know true joy so that we can see the joy that we think we find in this world, which there's great things that God has given us in this world to enjoy. When I, every time I leave the west side of the state, I think the same thing. Why do I live on the east side of the state? I love it over there. It's beautiful over there. And it is such a blessing to be able to enjoy that good gift from God. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I can say, I think very biblically, that is a good gift from God to enjoy. And we can enjoy that. 
But the joy that comes from this world is a false joy apart from God. And so often God will use suffering for us to see where true joy comes from. God uses suffering to show the world whose we are. I really like that one. God the Father disciplines his own. We are his own. And so he disciplines us. Why? To mold us and to make us into the image of his son. It's amazing to think that the God of the universe would care about you enough to even notice you for a second to discipline you. When I was on vacation this week, there were a lot of kids running around that were mine. And you want to know what I didn't do to my, the people who weren't mine? I did not discipline them. Why? Once. Why? I didn't care. You want another popsicle? Sure. Whatever. Just leave me alone. Right? That's, I mean, that's just how it kind of is. Yeah, great. My kids? Well, then can I have a popsicle, dad? No. <clears throat> you, you know, I, I notice them. I, I care about them. It's the same with us. The fact that God would even notice us to care about us, to work on us. Eighth thing he said, God uses suffering to make us happy. In Job chapter five, verse 17, it says, happy are those who God corrects. This is Job talking. Happy are those who God corrects. Uh, he would suffer so much, but he's happy because he knows God cares about him. <clears throat> verse nine, or number nine, God uses suffering to make silent the wicked. This was probably my favorite one. When the world sees Christians continuing to serve God, not for gain, but simply because they love the Lord. Even in the midst of hardship, trial, and difficulty, they still continue to worship God and to serve him. This is when the world takes notice. They do not take notice that you love him when you're getting every single job promotion and life is so great and grand. <clears throat> but they do take a notice when you're still faithful in the midst of a funeral. How you can stand before a casket and still say things like, God is still good. He's a good father. And I still love him, even though this hurts and it's so difficult. I still, I still love him because I know he loves me. That's when your friends notice. That's when your other family members notice. And God uses suffering to silent the wicked, for them to have no voice against the righteous because they see the truth in it. And then lastly, Thomas Watson would write that God uses suffering to make way for glory. All the suffering that we face in this world, we understand as Christians will one day be gone. And the prize that we get is glory with him forever. To worship him in a difficult life, <clears throat> you would have to think makes that so much sweeter to wait for that, to be able to experience that. Well, David goes on in verse eight, and I'll try to go quickly here. David now calls out to the people and he says, trust him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge <clears throat> for us. Here, David cries out and he's telling all the people as he is king to trust in the Lord. And it's so interesting to see a king do this. Not to say, look to me, I am the answer. But the king of the land to say, look to him. He is the answer, not me. He is the answer. And it's because David knows this. He knows he is not the source of hope for Israel. Only God is. And so then David goes on to say why this is true. Verse 9 and 10. Why can you not trust in David but trust in God? Because he understands this. Those of low estate are but a breath. If you have the King James Version, it says those of low estate are vanity. They're vanity. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up there are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. 
David goes and he gets the whole gamut of people. Those who are of low estate, what are they? They're, they're vanity or, or they're a breath or they're a mist. And it's, it's interesting, no matter if you're, what he's pointing out here is no matter if you're poor or if you're rich, what are, you're still vain. There's still sin. And in the, in the man who is the poorest man on earth, there's still sin in his life. There is still vanity and his life is still just a breath. <clears throat> I really like what they say for those of high estate. Those of high estate, a delusion. You are a delusion. This, this to me is, is what America teaches us, to believe a delusion. That when you get wealth, when you get the American dream, that is when you will be satisfied. We're teaching people to believe in a delusion that there is no hope in. No hope can be found there. Whether you're poor or rich, it doesn't matter because we all have sin in our heart and in our life. And that's what David then goes on to talk about, the false hope of money there in verse 10. Whether money is obtained justly or unjustly, it cannot do anything for you when it comes to your security. That's what David is pointing out here. It is a false hope. And so David lays it all out here. Everything that the world has to offer, it all just falls short. You might have a fun ride, but the ride ends in a fiery flame of destruction. And it's a delusion. There's no safety. There's no hope. There's no true joy in it. And David is pointing this out. Why not trust in me, King David? Because I'm just a man with sin. There's no hope found in me. <clears throat> there is only hope found in God, David is saying. And then he talks about why that can be, verse 11 and 12, as we close. Once God has spoken twice, have I heard this? That's an important phrase. Because in verse one, what was David doing? He was waiting in silence. Waiting in silence. And I dare say, if David would not have been waiting in silence, David would not have heard. He would not have heard what God had to say. And I love how many times God spoke. Once. It's the dream of all parents. Just once. But one time God speaks, and David says, I heard it twice, that power belongs to God. Now, I want to stop there because that is a good thing to know and to understand, that the God that we worship, the God that has saved us as Christians by the saving power of his son, Jesus, has complete power and control of all things. That should be comforting for us to hear and to know. But at the same time, it should be completely terrifying because he is the all-powerful one. And that's what, that's what makes what David says hereafter so important and so comforting. Power belongs to God, yes, and that to you, O Lord, what? Belongs steadfast love. You see, if you have an all-powerful God, but you have a God that doesn't have this steadfast love, this hesed love that we've been talking about all through Psalms, this, this love that really isn't two-sided. It's a one-sided love. It's this love that God pours out on his people unconditionally of mercy and peace and grace. If you had a God that was just all-powerful but didn't have this hesed love for you, you know what? You're a goner. You're insignificant and you don't matter. There's nothing about you 
The, the, the arguments that I hear from atheists then would actually be true. You are too insignificant for God. He's all powerful. Why would he care about you? Why would he care about you for a second? You can't even handle your own problems. But that's not the God that David's talking about. That's not the God that we come here today to worship and to praise. We serve the God that is all powerful, yes. But he also has steadfast love for you. And so the one person who has power to do anything in your life for some reason also has chosen to love you. To love you and to care for you. Right? I'm sure we've all had these thoughts as kids. Man, I wish I was their kid. Look at their house. Look at their pool. Look at the vacations they go on. Look at what they get to do. Gosh, I go to McDonald's once a month if I'm lucky. Right? Everybody's kind of had that thought before. We don't need to have that thought with our God. He's everything. He has everything. He's created everything. All things are his. And for some reason, I don't understand. Other than his love, he's chosen me. If you're a Christian here today, he's chosen you. He's chosen you. And if you're a non-Christian here today, if you've never trusted in God, you've never done that, the great thing is the offer extends to you. It extends to you. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can... You can be changed by the grace of God where he, he saves you. And these promises that David talks about of hope, of joy, of peace can be yours through Christ and through Christ alone. Not of your own doing. Many of you here today, if you're not a Christian, you're trying to earn it on your own. And I have, I, to me, it's good news. You can't do it. You can't open enough doors for old ladies. You can't obey the speed limit enough. You can't be kind enough at work. You can't be gracious enough to your wife. You're not going to be able to do any of that stuff. Only the righteousness of Christ can save you and give you these great things that we have in our good God, who's all powerful and all good. This, this world tells us that we find salvation and hope in other things. But the Bible tells us that we don't. It's interesting what David says at the very end there. He says, for you will render to a man according to his work. This is what I was just talking about. For those of us who've been saved by the grace of God through Jesus, the Bible tells me this, that on the day of judgment, when I stand before God and my works are laid out there, for me as a Christian who's been saved by grace, it's not my works that are going to show, but it's his work, Jesus. It's going to be the cross. It's going to be the burial. It's going to be the resurrection. It's going to be the perfect life that Jesus lived. That's what I will be judged on because of faith in Christ. But for those who have not trusted in Christ, they will be judged according to their work. It'll be all the things that you've said all the thoughts that you thought, all the times you said nice things to their face, but behind the closed doors, it was something very different. Right? All these things that you can think about in your life, and I really want you to think through those things because I know for me, there's no way I could stand before God and tell him with any hope, I deserve to be in heaven with you because I was a good guy. It's just not there in my life. It's just not there. 
And I would beg and plead with you today, if you haven't trusted in Christ, that you would. Because the road that you're walking on is it's a delusion. It's a delusion filled with no hope. And what God has given us and has told us in his word through his son is true hope. And it can be yours this morning by faith, believing and trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So I hope that you'll do that this morning. For the rest of us here this morning, who we know we've been saved by God's grace, in a moment we're gonna sing a song. I hope we're able to sing this song and worship to God because of his steadfast love to us. He's all powerful. And what does he use his power for? It's amazing. Your good. For your good. So that all things, right, that said in Romans 8, 28, work together for your good. He alone is worthy of our praise. Let's bow together. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. God, you know that this life is difficult, that it's hard. You don't hide that from us. You are very open, honest, and true to us. Even in Ecclesiastes, you tell us there is a time to be, to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to dance. There's also times to mourn. Because you have not hidden that from us. Life is difficult, and that's because of sin. Sin has created this chaos of hurt, of suffering. But God, again, we see in your word how you have took those things that seem to us so chaotic, but how you use that in the lives of your children, even suffering. How you can use that for our good to bring sin up in our life that maybe we wouldn't have noticed before that we can deal with that and go to you in repentance and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you forgive us of that sin. God, we, we thank you for salvation. We, we thank you that we can rest in your arms and know that it is a fortress. God, help us though in our weaknesses. Help us in those times when we start to doubt and we start to question. God, always draw us back, just like with David there, to be reminded Oh, my soul, wait in silence for the Lord, for he is your fortress. He is your rock. He is your salvation. God, I know for me too often, I know all these truths, but too often in my life, I try to save myself. I try to work things out on my own and God, more often than not, I just dig the hole deeper. So God, I thank you for your kindness to me. I thank you for your steadfast love to me that never leaves. Though others may leave, though others might get frustrated at me and they say they've had enough. God, that's not what you say. You remind me again and again that you are all powerful and you use that power in a loving way for me. And God, I thank you for that. God, for those people here this morning who've never experienced your saving grace, I pray that you would open their eyes to that truth this morning, that they would surrender themselves to you that they would trust in you for the forgiveness of their sins and God, that you would save them by your great grace. God, I know you continue to work in the hearts of people and so we thank you that you do that, that work that we can't do, you do it. So I thank you for that. God, as we get ready to sing this last song to you, I, I pray that for those of us who are Christians, that we would sing it as a form of worship to you today, to honor you, to praise you, God, we want to do that faithfully. So God, help us to respond to your word now how you see fit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, let's sing, church family. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online 
at mmbconline.org.